Welcome to Between the Lines, presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. I'm Scott Harris. This week we present Robert Herbst, a human rights lawyer in New York, who summarizes South Africa's 84-page case against Israel at the International Court of Justice, accusing Israel of committing genocide in its brutal war in Gaza. Michael Beer, director of Nonviolence International, who talks about his group's January 3rd protest action at the U.S. Holocaust Museum, where words and photos describing the carnage in Gaza were projected on the museum's outer walls. And Nikhil Suss of Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, who discusses his group's landmark case in Colorado, that disqualified Donald Trump from appearing on that state's Republican Party primary ballot. But first we begin with a summary of some of the week's underreported news stories. Since the military coup in Myanmar in February 2021, relations between Myanmar's generals and Beijing have been friendly. China has sold the junta $250 million in arms, as thousands have been killed, nearly two million people have been displaced, and the general's crimes against humanity have mounted. But now it appears Chinese leaders are reconsidering their options. A major offensive in northern Myanmar by ethnic rebel armies, known as the Three Brothers Alliance, has links to China's security services. The force operates in an area with strong Chinese influence. The Economist reports that the alliance claims to have seized 200 army bases and four border crossings vital for trade with China. Beijing is reportedly angry with the corrupt Burmese army that has been paid off by online scammers who target Chinese nationals. Beijing will likely maintain support for the generals, while at times also supporting their foes. This divide-and-rule policy is not responsible for the disaster in Myanmar, but it's probably making conditions worse. On Christmas Eve, San Diego police prepared to break up a sprawling tent city of homeless people in one of the nation's most expensive cities. Notes were taped on tents notifying people that they had 24 hours to vacate the camp or their possessions would be impounded. According to the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development, over 650,000 people are experiencing homelessness across the U.S., a 12% increase over a year earlier. Many municipal leaders defend the bulldozing of homeless encampments that they say is intended to reduce health hazards for the homeless and surrounding community while referring those in need to shelters and social services. But homeless advocates argue such sweeps are cruel, displace people from needed community support services, risk the loss of their few possessions, and don't address the root cause of the problem, which is the need for more affordable housing. For years, Northeast cities like New York and Boston have been challenged by a funding crisis for mass transit systems, exacerbated by declining post-COVID pandemic ridership. Last year, after a slew of safety failures involving the Massachusetts Bay Transportation Authority that serves Metro Boston, 
the Federal Transit Administration proposed increasing the role of state safety agencies supervising engineering and construction phases of transit projects. A federal inspection of Boston's mass transit system issued in August 2022 found that the combination of overworked staff and aging assets has resulted in the organization being overwhelmed, with a lack of resources for training and supervision and leadership priorities that emphasize meeting capital project demands above passenger operations, preventive maintenance, and even safety. Some state resources may be provided through a new voter-approved fair share program, which levies a surtax on millionaires to raise $1 billion in education and transportation funding. But according to the American Prospect, Boston's political leaders lack the clout in the Massachusetts State House to mandate the accountability necessary to improve the city's ailing transit system. This week's news summary was compiled by Bob Nixon. For Between the Lines, I'm Anna Manzo. As Israel's war against Hamas in Gaza entered its fourth month following the October 7th Hamas attack on Israel that killed 1,200 Israelis and captured 240 hostages, the IDF's air and ground assault has killed an estimated 23,000 Palestinians, mostly women and children, with 59,000 more wounded. Another 7,000 residents are reported missing, with most presumed dead. The war has displaced an estimated 90% of the people of Gaza and plunged an estimated 1 million Palestinians into hunger and starvation, according to the World Health Organization. Amid worldwide protests and condemnation of Israel's brutal war in Gaza that many view as vengeance-driven collective punishment, South Africa has filed an international court of justice case accusing Israel of committing genocide in Gaza. The ICJ will start hearing the case January 11th and 12th. Your reporter spoke with Robert Herbst, a human rights lawyer in New York who formerly served as a federal prosecutor in Chicago and Philadelphia. Attorney Herbst is co-chair of the U.S. chapter of the Israeli Committee Against House Demolitions and coordinator of the Westchester, New York chapter of Jewish Voice for Peace. Here he summarizes South Africa's 84-page case against Israel that presents evidence of Israel's genocidal acts and statements in horrifying detail. The definition of genocide comes uh, basically right from the 1948 Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of Genocide, and it's essentially acts intended to bring about the destruction of a substantial part of a national, racial, and ethnic group. The reason why Palestinians in Gaza qualify for that is that Basically, the 2.3 million people of Gaza uh, are a substantial part of the 5.5 million Palestinians under occupation. I think anybody would would agree that that is a substantial part of the Palestinian national racial ethnic group. It also documents the genocidal acts which violate the convention, and that includes killing Gazans en masse, causing them serious bodily and mental harm, 
and inflicting on them conditions of life calculated to bring about their physical destruction. In addition to the, to the numbers, you know, Israel has basically laid waste to the entire Gaza Strip. More than 2 million people of the 2.3 million have been displaced. The destruction has been enormous. Uh, at the time of the application, of 60% of Gaza's housing stock is now up above 70%. In addition to, you know, bakeries, schools, universities, businesses, places of worship, cemeteries, cultural and architectural sites, uh, the critical infrastructure, you know, water, sanitation facilities, electric networks, and a relentless, they say, assault on the Palestinian medical and health care system, which leaves all those uh, injured and those in need of uh, medical care basically without that. So if you get wounded and injured, you, you basically uh, have very, very little chance of, uh, of survival. And so essentially the allegation is that Israel is continuing to reduce Gaza to rubble, killing, harming, and destroying its people and creating conditions of life calculated to bring about their physical destruction as a group. So that's essentially what the genocide definition is and, 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 and the charge. Robert, I certainly want you to summarize the most important points our listeners may not be aware of in terms of the evidence that South Africa has presented in this filing and I further wanted to ask you what South Africa has to prove before the International Court of Justice to get a, a verdict that um, validates the case that they've laid out here. They basically have to prove genocidal intent and the genocidal acts covered by, by the convention. So in terms of intent, you know, the prime minister cited the biblical story of the total destruction of the Amalek by the Israelites. And that biblical passage essentially says, spare no one, but kill alike men and women, infants and sucklings, oxen and sheep, camels and asses. The president of Israel has said, and these are all quotes, it's an entire nation out there that is responsible. It's not true, this rhetoric about civilians not aware or not involved. We will fight until we break their backbone. He's talking about breaking the backbone of the civilians, not Hamas, of the civilians. The Minister of Defense, Mr. Gallant, no electricity, no food, no water, no fuel. Everything is closed. We are fighting human animals, and we are acting accordingly. Gaza won't return to what it was before. We will eliminate everything. The Minister of Energy and Infrastructure, all the civilian population in Gaza is ordered to leave immediately. They will not receive a drop of water or a single battery until they leave the world. Not Gaza, until they leave the world. The Minister of, of Heritage, there's no such thing as an uninvolved civilians in Gaza. The Deputy Speaker of the Knesset, now we all have one common goal, erasing the Gaza Strip from the face of the earth. And I, I can go on because this is all laid out uh, in this application, which if people have the time and stomach to read, it would be worth, uh, worth reading. You can find it on the, on the web. Robert, what impact will a finding of guilt from the International Court of Justice have on Israel, is it enforceable? Israel, for decades, has ignored numerous findings that it's breaking international law and continues to violate a whole slew of United Nations resolutions for illegal settlements and a lot more. Yes, well, if the court issues a judgment against Israel, that's binding. And if Biden continues to support for Israel, uh, he can veto any enforcement. There's no question about it uh, by the Security Council. 
I think it would be a moral disaster for the United States if he did it, but he, he might well do it. And I think regardless of whether it's enforced, I think it's a moral catastrophe for Israel and the Jewish people. Uh, and I'm speaking as a Jewish civil rights lawyer. If the Jewish state stands convicted in an international court of genocide within the lifetime of those who were children during the Holocaust, I think it is a, it's a catastrophe that will have a moral stain or a tarnish that's similar to the moral stain and tarnish that Germans feel, the German people uh, feel, you know, 80 years after the Holocaust. That was Robert Herbst, a human rights lawyer in New York. Learn more about South Africa's genocide case against Israel and find a link to Herbst's recent article titled South Africa Appeals to the International Court of Justice Stop Israel's Genocide in Gaza and Related Analysis by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. There's been no shortage of creative protest actions opposing Israel's murderous assault on Gaza that critics of the war say constitutes genocide and ethnic cleansing, in which the Biden administration that supports Israel is complicit. The death toll in Gaza has surpassed 23,000, about a third of them children. On January 3rd, Nonviolence International organized a group of Jews, Palestinians, and their supporters who projected words and photos describing the carnage in Gaza on the walls of the U.S. Holocaust Memorial Museum in Washington, D.C. The activists, many who are supporters of the Holocaust Museum, called on the museum's administrators to speak out against the atrocities in Gaza. Between the Lines' Melinda Tuhu spoke with Michael Beer, director of Nonviolence International, himself a descendant of Holocaust victims. The group was founded by a Palestinian, Mubarak Awad, who was a key organizer in the First Intifada, in which Palestinians employed nonviolent direct action tactics to resist Israel's occupation of the West Bank, Gaza, and East Jerusalem. Nonviolence International promotes the use of nonviolent resistance around the world, most recently in Palestine, Sudan, and Ukraine. Here, Beer talks about the January 3rd action, which is part of an ongoing campaign to pressure the Holocaust Museum to respond to the situation in Gaza. Activists from a number of groups, including Nonviolence International and Jewish Voice for Peace, Metro DC, and FOSNA, Friends of Sabeel North America, went to the Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. at 8 o'clock at night and set up a projector and projected slides and photographs onto the side exterior walls of the Holocaust Museum with words that said, never again for anyone, never again now, never again anywhere, stop the genocide in Gaza, and silence equals death. We did this for about a half an hour. We had a number of speakers, and we were all there to help the museum meet its stated mission, which is to stop genocide anytime, anywhere. And they have not been living up to their mission. They've issued pro-Israel statements, but have not spoken out against the ethnic cleansing and apparent genocide by Israel in Gaza. And we had speakers there, including a Holocaust survivor, Marianne Ehrlich-Ross, who spoke about trauma that it 
cause to her family and that she doesn't want any other Palestinian or any other family to suffer what she suffered. I spoke uh, as director of Nonviolence International. I myself had a great-grandfather who died in a Nazi camp, and I also have been strongly committed to trying to stop, prevent genocides and to prevent ethnic cleansings and atrocities around the world. And we had a speaker named Jonathan Katab, who's director of Friends of Sabeel North America, who's also an international human rights lawyer who spoke about the importance of international law and upholding it equally for everybody, including the Genocide Convention to which the United States and Israel are a party. So we had speakers speaking to why it was so important for the museum to speak up about genocide and why genocide is so important and why this museum that was started by the United States Congress, why it's important particularly for the U.S. Holocaust Museum to speak up in all cases of genocide and in particular on this one because United States weapons, United States money, United States political support, United States military intelligence support are all being used to support Israel in its ethnic cleansing and genocide in Gaza. So did you get any response from people who run the Holocaust Museum? One of the security guards didn't like what we were doing and stood in front of our projector. But the other security guard said, hey, it says never again up there. These people are not putting anything that's objectionable up on the Holocaust Museum walls. Let them do it. And we then were able to continue to do our slide projection and photo projection on the museum. Has there been any official response from you know the people who run the museum? The museum has not responded to this latest effort of ours to help the museum speak out in a good way or in an appropriate way about what's going on. This is a continuation of silence that has gone on since I and a colleague named Starhawk, a well-known feminist, nonviolent organizer, sent to the museum asking them to speak out on ethnic cleansing and genocide for the Gaza situation, and they did not respond to our open letter, and now they have not to date responded to our slides and photographs on the museum wall. From what I read, I is it true that you and Starhawk contacted the museum when it opened and asked them to add something that wasn't included when the original uh, museum opened? Is that true? Can you tell that story? I can. The Holocaust Museum opened in 1993, and they had a big opening ceremony that excluded any representation or mention of homosexual and bisexual men who were exterminated and imprisoned and persecuted by the Nazis in Germany. And we were very upset about this, and I and Starhawk organized an alternative opening ceremony in support of the museum to include the pink triangle and the experience of the bisexual and homosexual men who perished and who suffered. We had a glorious turnout of 500 people and the museum staff were great. They responded very quickly to include the pink triangle and the experience of homosexual and, and bisexual men. And we, Starhawk and I, 30 years later said, you were responsive 30 years ago to inclusivity. We're asking you to be inclusive now and to include the experience of the Palestinians. This U.S. Holocaust Museum has an extra responsibility to speak out on genocides and ethnic cleansing 
to which the United States government is complicit and the U.S. government is complicit in the genocide in Gaza. That was Michael Beer, director of the group Nonviolence International and author of the book Civil Resistance Tactics of the 21st Century. Learn more about the January 3rd action and Nonviolence International's work by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. On the third anniversary of Donald Trump's deadly January 6th insurrection and multi-layered plot to overturn the outcome of the 2020 presidential election, the nation is confronted by a constitutional crisis in the 2024 election like no other in U.S. history. The former president, who faces 91 felony counts in four different cases, including four criminal charges that he sought to subvert American democracy, by trying to overturn his 2020 election loss to Joe Biden, is the front-runner to capture the Republican Party nomination for president. Pro-democracy groups, including Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, or CRU, have filed cases in several states, calling for the disgraced former president to be barred from running for public office ever again under Section 3 of the 14th Amendment that was adopted by the U.S. Constitution after the Civil War. That provision bars from office any person who swore an oath to support the Constitution of the United States as a federal or state officer and then engaged in insurrection or rebellion. A case filed by Crew in Colorado resulted in the Colorado Supreme Court's December 19th landmark ruling that disqualified Donald Trump from appearing on that state's GOP primary ballot, a decision that Trump's lawyers have now appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court. On December 28th, Maine's Secretary of State also ruled that Trump is ineligible to appear on her state's GOP primary ballot. Your reporter spoke with Nikhil Suss, Senior Counsel and Director of Strategic Litigation with Crew, who talks about the importance of the Colorado case and the issues under appeal in the U.S. Supreme Court. Uh, the evidence that we presented uh, at trial uh, showed that uh, Trump had uh, stirred up his supporters' anger, mobilized them to come to Washington, D.C., that tens of thousands of his supporters did come to D.C. for January 6th, uh, specifically with the intent to disrupt the electoral vote count. And then they they did disrupt the uh, electoral vote count after he held his rally speech and directed them to march on the Capitol. Uh, And not only that, after he learned that the violence was ongoing, he sent a tweet at 2.24 p.m. at the height of the violence Uh, calling out Vice President Pence and saying he didn't have the courage to overturn the election. And the evidence that we presented at trial from multiple witnesses uh, and government reports showed that the that President Trump's tweet that he sent when he knew the violence was happening uh, measurably caused the mob to surge. It caused extreme violence at the Capitol after he sent that tweet. Uh, And the video evidence shows it. the eyewitness testimony shows it. And then there's, you know, his inaction while the attack was ongoing for uh, nearly three hours as well. That is, that is really fundamentally the case, uh, both his conduct leading up to and on January 6th. However, I do think his public statements after the 6th do sort of confirm 
uh, that he did mean to incite the insurrection on the 6th because, you know, if it was an accident, you know, if, if, if he accidentally incited tens of thousands of people to attack the Congress, then a year later, once the, uh, the violence and destruction and death was widely reported, you would think that he would say, oh, this is terrible uh, and sort of uh, distance himself from it. But he's done exactly the opposite. He's called it a beautiful day. He's uh, expressed solidarity with the attackers. He's called them hostages. You know, these are not the statements of somebody who accidentally caused an insurrection. So his post-January 6th statements, I think, confirm that he meant to incite a, a violent mob attack on, on Congress, and that he did do so on the 6th. Judges on Colorado's Supreme Court, as well as Maine's Secretary of State, have received death threats and harassment after they've announced their decisions on keeping Trump off the ballot in those two respective states. There are some who worry that keeping Trump off the ballot will, quote unquote, tear the country apart, apparently taking seriously the threat of Trump supporters mob violence to destabilize the country. Are you worried that politicians here who are scared about the potential for violence could ignore provisions of the Constitution out of that specific concern? So I am concerned about that. I'm also concerned about the violence. I mean, frankly, you know, this is not something that government officials should have to worry about. They should not have to worry that they are going to face death threats for enforcing the Constitution. That's despicable that that happens in our country. But, Scott, I mean, that's why we're here. That, that is why we brought this case. It's because Donald Trump deployed political violence uh, in an attempt to uh, invalidate an election, in, te- in an attempt to in- invalidate more than 80 million votes. It would have been the largest disenfranchisement in, in American history if it had been successful. And he tried to do that through violence. Since the 2020 election, we've only seen the threats against election workers and government officials and courts and other government officials that the former president has targeted increase exponentially. Uh, And so the threat of violence caused by Mr. Trump's words is very real and is a very real concern for all of us. Uh, But that being said, if we allow our enforcement of the laws and the Constitution to depend on sort of uh, mob veto, mob rule, that's effectively submitting to terrorism. That's effectively giving up on our democracy under the threat of violence. We accrue our, uh, we understand the risks associated with this effort, and we think abandoning our principles and abandoning our laws in the face of even the threat of violence is unacceptable. And as long as we have to have a constitution, uh, we have to defend it, even if it means dealing with these unprecedented threats. And so I hope that officials are not deterred from doing their jobs by the threat of violence uh, in the in these circumstances, but there's no denying that the threat is out there and that it's something that we have to be uh, extremely vigilant about. That was Nikhil Suss, Senior Counsel and Director of Strategic Litigation with Citizens for Responsibility and Ethics in Washington, or CREW. Learn more about CREW's landmark Colorado case to keep Donald Trump off the election ballot by visiting our Between the Lines website at btlonline.org. listening to Between the Lines, a weekly program presenting news and analysis of critical issues affecting our communities, the nation, and the world. Between the Lines is produced and distributed by Squeaky Wheel Productions. 
If you have suggestions for topics and guests, please contact Between the Lines through our website at btlonline.org, where you can hear our current and archive programs in streaming audio and support our show. There you can also subscribe to free weekly podcasts, program summaries, and interview transcripts. Follow us on Facebook at Between the Lines Radio News Magazine and on Twitter at BTL Radio News. Thanks for listening on WFHB in Bloomington, Indiana, KMXT in Kodiak, Alaska, REC Delmarva FM nationwide, dozens of other community radio stations across the U.S. and abroad, and wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Our theme music was written by Richard Hill and performed by Mika Todd. This week's program was produced by Susan Bramhall, Mary Hunt, Anna Manzo, Bob Nixon, Melinda Tuhus, and Jeff Yates. For Between the Lines, I'm Scott Harris.